0: Our sermon this morning is on Psalm 100, so turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find Psalm 100 on page 469, or you can flip in your bulletin to it, or you can just follow along in the, uh, on the, the slides. We've got, we've got it come, coming up there as, as well. There are, there are a number of psalms in the Bible that uh, theologians refer to as royal psalms. They're psalms that... Uh, that, that kind of um, speak intentionally about um, God as, as king. They declare and express and exult in um, the, the royal kingship of God. Right, God reigning from His throne, God reigning over His people. They celebrate the sovereignty and authority and power of God as the one true King. There's a there's a handful of Psalms. Well, yeah, there's you know maybe a a, yeah a handful of Psalms all throughout the Psalter, one to one fifty, but a bunch of them are consolidated between Psalms ninety three and ninety nine. So a a good portion of the Psalms between ninety three and ninety nine are royal Psalms. And so Psalm One hundred uh, seems to have been placed intentionally right on the uh, back end of those royal psalms, uh, because it it um, 's almost like the Okay, you know, so now what? Kind of thing, right after you read, you know, uh, uh, you know, a handful of psalms about, you know, Psalms ninety-three through ninety-nine say things like the Lord reigns, God is a great king above all gods, God uh, is on His everlasting throne that has been established from old, God is a mighty king who loves justice. Right? There's a lot of a lot of royal language in Psalms ninety-three to ninety-nine, and Psalm one hundred, uh, you know, is kind of the Okay, so now what? Given the reality that God is the sovereign king who reigns over his people, reigns over all things, uh, what are we to do in light of it? What's, what's, what's you know, the application for our lives because of that? And that's Psalm 100. It uh, speaks about how we, as the people of God, are to respond in light of the kingship and sovereignty and royal authority of God. So 93 through 95 is the kingship of God, Psalm 100 is kind of our response to the theological reality that God is our king. So I'm going to read through it. This is it, five verses. I'm going to read through it, and, uh, and then we're going to pray, and then take a few minutes to consider it uh, together. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, and come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, entering into your presence, gathering around your word, sitting under your word, remembering and celebrating that you are God and that you are our king. Lord, we pray that you would use these next few minutes to speak to us and to help us to grow. We pray that you would give us grace to listen and to hear and to respond. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so most of the time we kind of walk through passages, kind of verse by verse, taking them in the order that they come and just kind of, uh, yes, yeah, considering together what they mean and how they, how they apply. There are some passages, de- depending on how the, the way that they're written and the way that they're structured and kind of how the themes kind of uh, populate throughout that passage, it might be easier to kind of digest if we pick out certain themes or, or topics and kind of work through them one by one, as opposed to working through the verses in the order that they appear, and I think Psalm 100 is kind of one of those. Where uh, it's maybe easier to remember or to kind of uh, carry with us if we kind of break it down into you know kind of what yeah what the the themes that we see here. So there's there's uh, five verses one through five, but you can see it's structured into four stanzas, uh, four little triad stanzas. One through one verses one and two, and then three, four, and and five each kind of comprise a stanza, and and um, those stanzas kind of have uh, an A B a B structure to them, right? So, so the first stanza, which is verses one and two, and the third stanza, which is verse four, kind of um, are, are analogous in that they, uh, they they have a lot of uh, imperative verbs: make a joyful noise, serve the Lord, come into His presence, enter His right. It's it's like what the psalmist is telling the people reading this psalm or singing this song together to to do. And then uh, the the kind of the B the the the, the you know second. Theme is kind of in the second and fourth stanzas, or the third and fifth verses, um, which speaks specifically about who God is. Right, know that the Lord is God. He made us. We are His. The people, the sheep of His pasture. He's good. He's loving. He's fit, Right. So, so we're going to look kind of the two themes, the two. Buckets, as it were, that we're going to consider this morning are uh, who God is from verses 3 and 5, and then how we are to respond to God from verses 1, 2, and, and 4. And then within each of those, um, just because I'm you know an, an overly analytical thinker, so within each of those two big points, there's 4 subpoints each. So kind of point 1 and then four points, point 2 and then four points. And so when we look at um, who God is... We're going to consider that God is creator and shepherd and loving and faithful. Those are the the four kind of points about God that we're going to walk through. Uh, And then when we look at how we are to respond to God, we're going to look at uh, several of these verbs uh, or or synonymous verbs that he uses, namely to, to know and enter and sing and serve. And so who God is, creator, shepherd, loving, faithful, and then how we are to respond, know and enter and sing and, and serve. So, point, point 1A, as it were, uh, God is creator. We get that from verse 3, right? Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. So, um, it's, it's kind of a, the natural tendency of the human heart to... Uh, think about and want to know about and think rightly about who we are as, as people, as human beings. What is the nature of man? You know, we're, we're always kind of thinking about, about that. And, and um, I think it's uh, safe to say that we, we cannot, if the gospel is true, if the Bible is true, then, then, or even if it's not, right? We, we can't truly know who we are until we know Who created us? Where we came from? And and again, if the Bible is true, unless we know who who God is. There's there's an American theologian named Francis Schaeffer, uh, and then before him, a French philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre, um, who said that a finite point is meaningless apart from an infinite reference point. A finite point is meaningless apart from an infinite reference point. The idea is that if you take any point any finite point that you want to think about and understand what it is and what it means you can't really it's just it unless it's set against the backdrop of an infinite reference point then it's it itself is movable right like it's it's not it's it doesn't have any objectivity to it if if we i mean numbers think about numbers uh the number 2 if we if i say the number 2 we all know what the number 2 means and we all can kind of understand what I'm saying when I say the number two, because the finite point that is two is set against the infinite reference point that is all of the numbers that go back to negative infinity and forward to positive infinity. Infinite reference point, all the numbers, finite point two, so it makes sense. Two makes sense because of that. If I were to say, you know, when I was in college, uh, I I would go watch, I was JMU, I would go watch our football team play every Saturday, and there's the 25-yard line. And so seemingly it was like static, and we know what the 25 yard line is. We sit here, we watch it. But since I've left, they moved the stadium. They like renovated and moved. So the, field, the actual football field itself moved. So the, the word, 20, the, the concept of 25 yard, 25 yard line ness, whatever that is, right, is, doesn't have any real meaning in and of itself because the, the field, the reference point for the 25 yard line, is itself movable. And so there's no we don't have an objective meaning for what twenty five yard line means because the reference point for twenty five yard line is the football field, which itself is not infinite and immovable and fixed. So the reference point is to be fixed in order for the finite point within it to have any to make any sense or to be able to understand what it is. That's so Schaefer was taking that quote from Sartre and saying that's humanity and God. Right? We we can't know who we are. We don't know who we are as human beings apart from some infinite, fixed, unchangeable, unchanging reference point for us. The finite creature is meaningless apart from the infinite creator. The only way that we can know who we are is against the backdrop of the infinite God who created us. And so, because God created... I mean, we can see the implications worked out right in verse 3. Because God created us, it is he who made us, the implication is that... Mm -hmm. He owns us. We, we are his. We belong to him. Right? God possesses. He has ownership rights over, hum, over everything that he's created, not the least of which is every person, every human being that he has created. We belong to God. He is, he, we are his. If you create something, if you, if you go home this afternoon and write a song, that song is now yours. You own it you wrote it you you know it's it's yours you can do whatever you want no one can come into your home and take the song from you and go you know record it or play it in public and make money off of it it's yours and you own it the song can't look back at you and say i want to go be played in this restaurant at this, t- you know, it's like it's yours. You own it. You created it. You can do what you want with it. And one of the implications of God having created you is that you belong to God. You are his. He can do whatever he wants with you. He can ask anything of you that he wants to ask of you. He can call you to go anywhere that he wants you to go. You belong to him because he created you. I would even venture to say that Much of the sin and rebellion against God that we see in the world today is, is born out of our forgetting that God is the one who made us and that therefore we belong to him. Right? If we, if we confuse the distinction between the creator God and the creation, the creatures that we are, if we forget that God made us, then we start to assume that, I don't know, we made ourselves, or no one made us, and therefore no one owns us, right? I mean, God doesn't say who I am. I am the one who says who I am. God doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm the one who says that. God doesn't tell me how I'm supposed to live. I am the one who who says that. And that kind of idea of self-determination, or self-actualization, or self, you know, Um, like fulfillment and kind of self-expression is kind of the mantra of the the world uh, today. And the only way that you'll arrive at that mantra, that I do what I want, go where I want, say what I want, I am who I say that I am, is if you forget that someone that's not you made you and they have ownership, rights, and authority over you. So the psalmist says, you didn't make yourself God made you, and therefore God owns you. You belong to God. You are his. So point 1A is God is our creator. But that in and of itself doesn't tell us a ton about um, the heart of God and the character of God, right? And the the love of God, frankly, right? Like there there are any number of, there are all kinds of, Creators, little c creators, who frankly aren't really that good, right? You know, like all the artists and and you know celebrities that like have this great career with all of you know art, artistic st- movies, music, whatever, and then we find out that they're a creep and that they're that they're bad and they exploited people and abused them that kind of thing. So just because you're a creator doesn't mean that you're good. And the psalmist wants to say a. God is our creator, and therefore he is sovereign over us. That's the first two lines in verse 3. But but also, God is our shepherd. We are his people. We are the, the sheep of his pasture. And so, it's not just that God created us and that God has ownership rights over us, which he does. It's also that he's a good, kind God. Like, his... Being over us and having authority over us is actually good because he himself is good like a shepherd is to, a, to his sheep. The shepherd has a flock of sheep that belong to him or that have been entrusted to him, and he leads them into green pastures where there's food for them to eat. He leads them beside still water so that they can drink and rest and, and be restored in their souls. He protects them from danger. He has a, a rod and a staff. When wolves or predators try to attack, the shepherd cuts them off and, and stands between the predator and the sheep and makes sure that nothing bad happens to them. Shepherds love their sheep. Shepherds sacrifice for their sheep. Shepherds lay down their lives for their sheep shepherds lead and feed and care and protect and provide for their sheep and the psalmist is saying that's what that's what God does he's not just uh, the creator God who has authority over you he's also the shepherd who who loves you and takes care of you and is kind to you and and looks out for what's for what's in your best interest so in verse three we kind of see two attributes of God on display the sovereignty of God, which is crucial. We see it over and over in Scripture. It's, it's something that cannot be denied or ignored. But also the, the love and compassion and the goodness of God, which is also all throughout Scripture and cannot be denied or ignored. If God is, if God is sovereign but not good, then you have a tyrannical dictator crushes anyone and anything in his path and takes what he wants, even at everyone else's expense, and, and we would hate him. If God were good but not sovereign, then, you know, oh, he'd mean well, right? Like, that's uh, so, uh, so cute, right? He would want to help us. He would want to save us. He would want to take care of us, but he wouldn't be able to do it because he wouldn't be strong enough, and he would be of no value to us. But a God who is both sovereign and good, which is what the psalmist says that God is, Is a powerful, mighty king who also loves and cares for his people and is willing to sacrifice for them. So 1A, God is our creator. 1B, God is our shepherd. 1C, we see down in verse 5, uh, God is loving, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. I think it would be accurate to say that the most foundational truth that we could articulate about God is that God is loving. That the steadfast love of God endures forever. And, you know, all of the seminary students, when they hear that, are probably going to immediately, hands are going to shoot up because, you know, well, there are a bunch of other attributes about God that are also all true. God is just and God is holy and God is righteous and all of that is absolutely true or, or you know, Heinz will shoot up. Well, that's that's misleading or misguiding because the world has has redefined what that means and has kind of changed the phrase that God is loving to where it really means that God, um, you know, is going to affirm and endorse anything and everything that I want to want to do. And so, there's a, any number of caveats that we can kind of put in that in that sentence, and that's all true and and good. But I still think the the principle still stands that the most foundational truth about God is that God is loving. 1 John 4 says that God literally is love. Love is not something that God does. Love is uh, what God is. God is love. One theologian defines the love of God as the benevolent disposition or inclination in God that stirs him to bestow benefits upon physical, uh, both physical and spiritual benefits upon those created in his image, uh, which is most clearly seen in that he gave himself to us in his son through which God has given us the most enthralling, beautiful, and eternally satisfying experience possible Namely, the knowledge and enjoyment of God himself. I'd read it again, but it will take a while. But um, you know, the, the, the main idea is that the love of God is the benevolent disposition. God's desire deep in his heart to treat his people better than they deserve to be treated and the best thing that he can do for them is to is to let them experience and behold and and enjoy and sit in the presence of his very self his very glory so when the psalmist says that the steadfast love of the lord endures forever that's what he's saying god's intention God's desire to treat you better than you deserve to be treated that is steadfastly residing in the heart of God and it never changes forever and ever think about the most loving thing that you've ever done for anyone the most others centered the the most kindness you've ever shown anyone Spouse, kid, family member, stranger, who knows, right? Some need of theirs that you anticipated and met because you care about them. You know, if you're like me, you're probably realizing that the only reason you could do something like that is because that selfless act of love, that sacrifice that you took upon yourself for the betterment of or for the the benefit of some other person, you could do that because it was an isolated incident. It was it was immediately preceded by and immediately followed by an opportunity to just kind of be a little bit selfish, right? My kids love to play and roughhouse. You know, they throw them up in the air, you know, grab them by one, do curls, you know, whatever. But anything that like is, anything that's like, physically exhausting for me is what they, they somehow like know. It's like an inverse, right? Like, it could be the most fun thing in the world, but if dad enjoys it, it sucks, we don't want to do it. It could be the, the most boring thing in the world, but if it's like exhausting and depleting to dad, then that's what we want to do constantly, all day, every day, right? So, so I, I, and I love doing it. I love playing with them. I love roughhousing, throwing them on the couch, going to the pool, whatever, and, but it's exhausting and they're, they're not getting any smaller and I'm not getting any younger, so it's, you know, it's so i can i can play with my kids for like a few minutes and then i need a nap right you can spend all afternoon serving your spouse working on the house laundry dishes cooking whatever it is right you can do all of this like incredibly others centered loving things and then you need to you need time to yourself you need to relax you need to kind of decompress right donate your kidney or liver to someone save their life and then you go on a trip to the Bahamas right like because you can't you can only do the like the only way I can do that thing is if I know that it's eventually going to stop and then I can do this right we can all only no one can ever spend their life entirely only doing loving selfless things God does God only ever does things that are loving, right? His love is not wavering. It is steadfast. It doesn't last only for a moment or for a season. It endures forever and ever and ever. Which then kind of, you know, leads to the next one, which is really an extension of the the third one anyway, which is that God is not only loving, but that he is faithful. His faithfulness extends to all generations. Meaning that all of those things about God, his sovereignty, his, his love, his goodness, his grace, his desire to look out for his people and treat them better than they deserve to be treated, all of those things, God, not only, he doesn't do them, he, he does them forever, unchangingly, indelibly. They never change, they never get, grow or, win, you know, they, they never increase or decrease. They are just always, permanently, constantly, God is faithful Right? One, one theologian describes the faithfulness of God, defines it as um, the faithfulness of God means that God is unchanging in his nature and true to his word. He has promised salvation to his people and he will keep his promises forever. No matter how unlikely they seem, nothing in heaven or on earth can prevent God from accomplishing all that he has promised his people through Jesus Christ. So God never changes, he never fails, he never breaks his promises. Whatever he says, he does. Whatever he is, he is forever. You never have to worry about or think about whether God is going to keep his promises or not. He will. It's literally impossible for God to break his promises because the only thing that God cannot do is not be God. The only thing that God cannot do is not perfectly fulfill the attribute, his godness, the, the, the attributes of God that make him God. God can't not be them because if he were, he wouldn't be God. And so one of his attributes is faithfulness. He never changes, always keeps his word. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I will always be faithful to you. Right? Think about the most faithful person that you know, right? That would, they've never let you down. You can't even conceive of a world in which they ever would let you down. They're reliable. They're a rock, right, If you needed, if your car broke down, you had to call your one person, your phone was going to die. Who's the one person I'm going to call? Right, it's that person, right? Hebrews 11 describes what, uh, you know, Theologians call the Hall of Faith, right? It's like this, you know, kind of list of all of the most faithful people that have ever existed in all of humanity. And interestingly, if you read Hebrews 11 and kind of take all the names of all the people that are listed there being the most faithful people that there are, the most faithful people that there could be, and then cross-reference them and read their stories in their entireties elsewhere in Scripture... You're going to find that all of these quote-unquote faithful people that Hebrews 11 is talking about are all a bunch of murderers and liars and scoffers and cowards and, and bullies. The best and most faithful people that humanity has to offer are not all that faithful. We're as faithful as we can be, as faithful as a human being conceivably could be, but we're not all that faithful. We're, you know, actually quite faithless, but God is faithful. God is steadfast. The faithfulness of God extends to all generations. He never changes. He never fails. He never breaks his promises. So that's who God is. He's creator and shepherd and loving and faithful. now we'll look at uh, a couple more points about, or four more points about how God is calling us to uh, respond to him. God wants us to know and to enter and to sing and to uh, serve. And so the first one, to to know, pull that from verse 3, right? Know that the Lord is uh, God. Know that it is he who made us that we are his. Know that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the application is, as a Christian, one of the most important things that you can do in response to who God is and what God has done for you is not really anything it's not really to do anything at all it's to know it's to see it's to observe it's to look at and acknowledge and 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 understand something that someone else has done for you. It's to savor and enjoy. The first step of Christian obedience and Christian faithfulness and Christian discipleship is just to know. To know true things about God. To believe true things about God. To believe that God is good and sovereign and has authority over your life and that He is a good shepherd who loves you and cares for you and takes care of you. The first thing that we need to do is believe. Right? We, we, are, we love a quick fix, right? You know, how to make your first million in these six easy steps, or four quick points to a better marriage, or right, like we would tell me what to do so that I can just go ahead and knock it out and do it and check it out, check it off my, my to do list. And the psalmist is saying it doesn't work like that with God. You have to slow the first thing that you need to do is really not anything to do, it's something to know and see and believe. And in fact, everything that from your Christ, everything in your Christian life from that point forward is all born out of something that you know and see and believe. If you do all of the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian, right if you practice the spiritual disciplines and and you know you're, you're, go to church and you love your neighbor and do all of these things just fastidiously and as carefully as you can. If you do all the right things, but it's not flowing out of, it's not born out of knowing the right things, then it's of no value at all. Romans 14 says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the the most godly, kindest, most loving, others-centered action that you could ever perform, if that action is not performed out of if it's not animated by and motivated by and born out of faith in who God is trusting in who God is believing right and true things about who God is then that loving action that others centered action is ultimately just another form of sinning against God you can't really truly love God Without knowing who he is. You can't really truly follow God without knowing who he is. You can't really glorify God with your life without knowing who he is. The first step of growing in holiness, growing in godliness, growing closer to God is believing right and true things about God. That he is infinite, that he is sovereign, that he is eternal, that he is omnipotent, that he is glorious that he is holy and loving and just and merciful and gracious and patient, that he gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to save us from our sins, to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can be reconciled to him. Christian discipleship starts with knowing theological truths about God and believing them and recognizing them and acknowledging them and, and resting in them. The first thing that God wants us to do in response to who he is is to know who he is. But, lest I inadvertently communicate to you that that knowledge and intellectual assent of a set of facts about God is all that you need to do in your Christian life. Let's move on to... The second point, which is we're, 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 we're to know, 2A, but also we are to enter, in 2B, right? Uh, verse 4, enter uh, his thanks, uh, his gates with thanksgiving. Verse 2, come into his presence with singing. So, the gospel is not just a thing that you have to know, it's also a thing that you have to do. It's a, it's a, you, there's movement involved. You have to enter in, come into. It's not like it's, following Jesus is more than believing true things about Jesus. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Knowing implies here's a thing, and I think that it's true, and that's great. But entering implies here's a place, and I'm going to go to it, go into it. I'm going to get up, move my body toward a new place, I'm going to enter into it, come into the family of God, the presence of God. There are a great many Christians who sadly have reduced what it means to trust in Jesus to look more like knowledge and less like entering. More like believing that a proposition is true and less like Walking into a place, actively deciding to move myself into a a place. I've shared the illustration before, but it's worth repeating. If you needed to get to Los Angeles by midnight tonight, you've got to buy a ticket, go to the airport, go into the terminal, get on the plane, and fly to L.A., and you can, do, you can make that happen. If you don't do that, you won't, you won't get there. Like, there's no, nothing, no matter what you say or, or know or, or believe or think is true, none of that really matters. You're not going to make it to Los Angeles. You could walk up to the gate and tell the airline employee, you know, I really, honestly, deep in my heart, believe that this plane is going to make it to Los Angeles. I, I, I really believe it. I know it. I think it. No one can tell me otherwise. You could be the president of the airline and be in charge of where all of the planes in the fleet are going at any given moment and which ones go where. You could be an aeronautical engineer who wrote a dissertation on Bernoulli's principle and how airplanes like this one achieve lift and how they right. But if you're if you don't buy a ticket, walk down that thing, the little runway thing, and get on the plane, you're not gonna make it to Los Angeles. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters that you have to enter. You have to get in. You have to make a to sit, do a thing, right? Go, get on the plane. That's the way it is with Jesus. You. It doesn't matter what you know about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus. It matters whether or not you enter, come inside, hide in the, the person and work of Jesus by trusting him, by repenting and trusting in him. In fact, the word believe might not even be the... the, the most helpful terminology uh, compared to a word like trust, which seems to imply it's a thing that you do. It's, it's, a, right? it's, not, a, it's not acknowledging that a thing is true. It's, it's acknowledging that a thing is true and then like, a- acting on it and leaning on it and believing that it's true such that I put my weight on it and trust that it is going to hold me up and, and save me. There's a difference between acknowledging or knowing and trusting or, or entering, and and both are, are necessary. Knowing means that we believe things about Jesus in our heads; we give intellectual assent to it, which is necessary. But entering means that we decide to personally embrace Jesus and lean on him and hold fast to him, and that is necessary as well. So, two so a is that we are to know. Uh, point two b is that we are to enter. Point two c. Is that we are to sing? See that in verse one, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We see it in verse two, come into his presence with singing. We see it in verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, and give thanks to him and bless his his name. Right? So, so to know is a matter of the head, the intellect, the brain. Right? It's 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 facts that you know and believe, and to enter uh, is. act of the will it's a decision that i make it's something that i volitionally decide to do singing is a matter of the heart the emotions i'm not just going to believe that god is who he says he is i'm not just going to trust him to save me like he says that i can do but i'm also going to love it and cherish it and and like really genuinely enjoy it deep in my more than i love my spouse more than i love ice cream. I'm going to love that God has saved me through Christ. And so the psalmist is saying, part of what it means to follow God, to follow Jesus is that you not only know about him and not only trust him, but that you love him. And then that love for God is going to overflow, burst out into worshiping and singing and praising and making a joyful noise to the Lord. I would submit to you that there are far too many Christians who are content to simply know and acknowledge and believe and even trust in God and then to effectively be utterly indifferent to who God is in their hearts. They love lots of things. They clearly have the capacity for joy and excitement. They get excited about a new car. They get excited about a new phone. They, they jump up and down when their favorite sports team scores. Right? They go to a concert and they sing with gusto along with their favorite musician. They have the capacity for joy and elation, but their understanding of the Christian life is, know that Jesus is God, believe that Jesus died for my sins, and that's it. And the psalmist is saying, you have to do that and You have to love that those, it's not just believe that those things are true, you have to love that those things are true. You have to delight, take great joy and delight in the truthfulness of those things, right? So that when there's just like a response when your team scores a touchdown or when you win a raffle or when you're Daughter gets married, or you right. What like there should be an emotional response that, that is elicited by the good news of the gospel that Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice to save you from your sins. It's not just something that we believe dispassionately and academically, it's something that we love and cherish and rejoice in and exult in and treasure. That's why we gather together to hear it. I'm not telling you anything any Sunday that you haven't already heard before. I don't know if you caught on to that yet. I got, I'm a fastball pitcher, and that's the one pitch I have. Throw it until I get Tommy John surgery and retire. I'm not, you know, I all, I say the same thing every week on purpose. And if I ever don't, then that then I'm, you know, that would be my mistake, right? So so we gather together to hear the same good news. With the, with the intention that it will then catapult, it will compel us to love God more, worship God more, love one another more, right? The, 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 the goal why we, we gather together for the purpose of hearing the good news of the gospel so that it will excite us and it will animate us to love the gospel and love God more. It's not a, it's not an, a dispassionate thing. It's, a, it's an emotionally charged thing on purpose. So 2A, we are to know. 2B, we are to enter. 2C, we are to sing. And then finally 2D, we are to serve. Right? Verse 2 uh, serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with, with singing. So the Christian life is not merely one where we know true things about God. It's not merely one where we decide to trust in and follow Jesus. It's not merely one where we love who God is in our hearts emotionally, but it's also one where we then act and do and live, right? What we walk this life of costly discipleship and obedience to God because that's what he is calling us to, to do. One of the most effective ways that you can tell whether you Or someone around you loves the Lord? It's not by listening to what they say. It's by looking at what they do. Whether they're serving the Lord or not. Anyone can say, I believe in God. Anyone can self-identify as a, a Christian. Anyone can say, I believe, I have entered, I love God, I am excited with joy at the good news of the gospel. But one key piece of evidence that lends credibility and speaks to the fact that they really actually do believe and love God is whether they are obeying and serving God. If there's someone who says, I believe in God, I love God, I I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins, but that same person does not... Uh, practice the spiritual disciplines, they don't uh, read their Bible, they don't spend time in prayer, they're not a part of a local church, they're not practicing self-control, they're not faithful to their spouse, they don't care about the law of God or obeying God in any meaningful way. If you were to see someone like that, I mean, I'm not God, and so I cannot see what's really in their heart, and I can't say for sure if they're a Christian or not, only God can say that, but I can say that based on the outward evidence it does not point clearly to the conclusion that they are a Christian. Because what you believe and what you you really believe and what you really love is going to manifest itself in what you do. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart is what the mouth speaks. So what you say and what you do comes out of inevitably. It's a reflection of what you really believe and what you really think and what you really feel. So if you want to know what you really believe or what you really think or what you really feel or what someone else really believes and thinks and feels, then look at what they say, look at what they do, look at how they live their life. Look at whether they're obeying God or not. Look at whether they're serving God or not. Look at whether they're loving their neighbor or not. Look at whether they're practicing the spiritual disciplines or not, look at whether they're a part of a church or or not, the answers to those questions are going to go a long way in helping to determine whether you really are a Christian. You cannot have two masters. You can only have one. Choose this day which master you're going to serve, right? If the Lord is God, then serve Him. If Baal is God, then serve Him. If money is God, then serve money. If, uh, you know, status and security, pleasure, if those things are God, then serve them. If your self is God, then serve yourself. But do it with open eyes, knowing that who I serve is the one that I'm really worshiping. It's the one that I really believe in and love and am trusting more than anything else. Don't delude yourself into thinking that you believe in God and trust in God and worship God if you are really serving someone else or something else more than than God. Who you serve is an indicator of who you love and who you are trusting in and who you are believing in. So being a Christian is not merely believing true facts about God. It's Again, it's not less than that, but it's far more. Being a Christian is not uh, simply trusting in God and leaning on him and entering into his family and into his kingdom through repentance and faith. It's, it's, it's not less than that, right? Like, it's, you know true things about God, you, you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, and then as we do, being a Christian involves uh, worshiping God, singing to him, praising, gladness, thanksgiving, It's not possible for the human heart to really believe the gospel and grasp the gospel and remain emotionally indifferent. And then believing the gospel involves serving, obeying God, obeying his commands, putting God on the throne in our hearts, in our lives, walking with him in Christian discipleship, living for him instead of living for ourselves, instead of living for the people around us or the, the approval of the, of the world, right? Knowing, entering singing, and serving. That's what the Christian life looks like. And all of that comes as a response to, as as a reaction to who God is. God is our creator. God is our shepherd. God is loving. And God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things, that you have created us, that we are yours, we are the sheep of your pasture. We thank you for your steadfast love that endures forever, for your faithfulness that lasts to all generations. Lord, we pray that we could see you rightly as our great God and King, that we could respond to you appropriately by believing the gospel and trusting in you to save us, by worshiping you in spirit and truth with our church family, and by serving you faithfully with gladness and and with a happy heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.